Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Dr. Morrow, we're glad to have you back, and the show is all yours. Great. Well, let me begin with a, a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. So, welcome back. It's great to be back. I want to just quickly provide a, a brief overview of where we're at for what we covered in the last talk. Uh, if you have the handout, that's basically pages one to two of that handout. We were covering the topic of uh, politics in the Bible, political theory, and sacred scripture. And what I tried to argue was that what we find in the Old Testament is we find God fathering his family so that the core political community that we see, and this, this is true for the natural philosophers like Aristotle, as well as the great theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast is today, is the family, right? So the family unit is the core of society, all right? So political life at some level begins in the family and it expands outward to the broader community. So what God has done is he has called the people to himself, Israel, and he has made them part of his family. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, we find, uh, following St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and others, that the community of Israel, both after the Exodus event with Moses, and then with the kingdom with David and Solomon, the argument they make is that this is basically the best we can do on our own without the sacramental economy, without the grace of God mediated to us via the sacraments. And that's very important. So what we find in this, this nation of Israel, this kingdom of Israel, is we find the natural law communicated in a way that is accessible to the people. And what this does is it does two things. It teaches them the right and wrong, which they should know, except that because of original sin and because of all of the deformation they've experienced in captivity in Egypt, they've forgotten. They don't have easy access to it also helps them not just to, to know the law, but it helps enforce the law, which is very important. All right. So what we're going to talk about today is how Jesus fulfills all of that. I think at the end of the, the session, somebody asked a question, Dr. Morrow, it sounds like you're saying that monarchy patterned on the kingdom of Israel, that's what we should have. And I, I think I answered something like yes and no. And the reason is because, we live in a very different society than what Israel had. What Israel had was provisional. It was always pointing forward to the coming of Christ. That was the point. And it was also preparing for the coming of Jesus. Right? So that, that's really what the Old Testament kingdom of Israel was about. 
On the other hand, you had a nation with a land where they're following a king. They're all the family of Israel, the family of God. They're all Jewish, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea. So again, a model like that could work very well in a place like 13th century France, which is an example we gave, all right? It's not going to work so well today necessarily. It could. And so as Catholics, we do not have one political view of what should kind of natural politics look like. What political party should we be a part of? Things like that. We're not going to have a clear directive from God or from the Catholic Church on that. Why? Because of the way in which, I would argue, the way in which God fulfilled the old. Okay, when he, when he had the kingdom of God, when we look for that phrase, we do not find it in the Old Testament. All right? Just a recap from last week. Rather, we find in the book of Daniel a kingdom God establishes, and then the closest phrase we have in the Old Testament to the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Yahweh, or the kingdom of the Lord. And we find that only in First and Second Chronicles. And that kingdom of Yahweh is identified as the kingdom of David. So when Jesus fulfills this, we find something new, radically new. When the kingdom of David is established, David rules a nation in a land. When Jesus fulfills the kingdom of God, that kingdom of God is not the temporal ruler of Israel. Rather, the Roman Empire is. So the kingdom of God emerges in the midst of another temporal rule, political order. And that's what I want to talk about today, how this kind of works out, all right? And so I want to start with the coming of Christ. I'm going to start with the Gospel of Matthew. And what I would recommend is I would recommend having a finger or a bookmark in the book of Exodus, chapter 24. Another finger or a bookmark in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 22. And then the final one I would, I would recommend is Matthew chapter 16. Now we could go through the entire gospel of Matthew. I regularly do an hour and a half lecture just on the genealogy in Matthew chapter one. And I think there's a lot we could do with that and the political implications, the implications for the kingdom of God. But I'm going to spare you that tonight. We just don't have time. Um, but I would argue that you could walk through every single chapter of the gospel of Matthew. And I do this with my students and you could find imagery taken from the kingdom of David, right? Davidic imagery, son of David imagery associated with King Solomon. Sometimes it's explicit son of David. Other times it is implicit. And I think this is very important. And it starts in the first chapter, right? You have, you have a boatload of David imagery in the first chapter that's quite explicit. I recommend you on your own, just walk through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, the Annunciation to St. Joseph, and you'll see David, the son of David, Solomon, come up again and again. It's very important. But what I want to do is I want to focus on Matthew 16, and this is why. I think it is a very clear example of how Jesus fulfills the structure of the Old Testament kingdom of David, right? And this is obviously political. It's much more than that, but it's obviously political. So what do we have? We have the 12 apostles that Jesus has gathered around him. Now, often we make the mistake and identify them as the only disciples. I find that a lot, at least. Actually, Jesus has a much wider crowd of disciples. 
right? If you compare all of the accounts of the Gospels, he has the 12, the apostles. He has the 70. Some manuscripts have 72. I think it's 70, but we don't have to get into that right now. And then he has the 120. And then beyond the 120, which we see, for example, the Gospel of Luke, he has a much wider crowd of followers. Okay? Now, this is important for two reasons. One, he is fulfilling the Old Testament community of God. Right? In Hebrew, this is the kahal. Okay? It's a fancy term. If you read uh, regularly the writings of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, you might have encountered that word sometimes, um, or Scott Hahn or others. Uh, the kahal is the community of God. It's a worshiping community. The reason I bring it up is because it's translated often by a Greek word you might be familiar with, ekklesia, that is the church. So when the Greek translators encounter that phrase in the Old Testament, the kahal, the community, the worshiping community, they often use the phrase ekklesia, church, assembly. Right, this is important because the first place we really see this with a structure is Exodus 24. So keep one finger in Matthew 16 and turn to Exodus 24. We spoke briefly about this in the last lecture, but this is important for a couple reasons, okay? In Exodus 24, verse 1, we have Moses representing God, just as Jesus represents God. We have Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu, all right? Those three set apart. In the New Testament, we find three set apart, three disciples that are often with Jesus alone, like at the Transfiguration, at the Mount of Olives, and elsewhere. It's Peter, James, and John. Just as Aaron serves as Moses' high priest in Exodus, so Peter serves as Moses' high priest in the New Testament. All right, there's an excellent article. I, I, put, you, I put it on the, the handout by my friend Michael Barber, on this. It's a scholarly article, but it's worth your time trying to kind of work through. It's really good. Showing how Peter is not only Jesus's prime minister of his kingdom, the royal steward, he's also his high priest, right? So he serves as, in a sense, the first pope, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. So then you have Nadav and Abihu, right? The two brothers, like James and John, is the two, both of them are Levites, probably, as Nadav and Abihu are Levites, the two brothers. You have the 12 tribes of Israel symbolized by the 12 pillars that Moses has put up in Exodus 24. Just as you have Jesus choose the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is important, I think, because they have to represent the 12 tribes. They can't come from the 12 tribes. So their number is exclusively symbolic. Now, how can I say they don't, they don't come from the 12 tribes? Because 10 of those tribes are lost. Right? So the 12 tribes of Israel, the only ones that have survived in Jesus' day, are Judah and Benjamin. Right? Levi is not counted. They're the 13th tribe. So they're the uncounted priestly tribe. So those are the three right, of 13. So the 12 tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, are the only ones left. The other 10 are gone. Right? They've assimilated among the Gentiles, or they've become Samaritans, or like Anna from the tribe of Asher, you might have you know, a couple handful of, the, of a remnant from those tribes. But in general, the tribes are gone. Moreover, some of these figures, like James and John, are brothers. They come from the same tribe. So they don't come from all 12 tribes of Israel, the apostles. Rather, they symbolically represent the fullness of Israel. That's what Jesus is doing. 
And then again, in Exodus 24, you have the 70 or 72 elders, these priestly figures. Why is that important in Matthew's gospel and in the New Testament? It's important because there was another political body that had 70 members, like the 70 disciples, with a high priestly figure representing the people of Israel. And that was the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin of Jesus' day was set up explicitly on the pattern of the community of Israel in Exodus 24. And this is explicit. So if you were to read the Jewish Talmud, for example, this is, they make an explicit reference here to the Sanhedrin being based on the community of Israel. I would argue, following Brant Petrie, that if you want to understand some of the animosity between the Sanhedrin, or at least members of the Sanhedrin, and Jesus in the early church, part of it is that they recognized what Jesus was doing was establishing a new theological, religious, political community, a, a new leadership, a, a new kingdom. Why kingdom? Right? Why kingdom? Because we find that when David establishes king, his kingdom, it also follows a similar pattern on the fullness of Israel. Right? If you would turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 4. We can do a lot with this. The beginning of 1 Kings is actually really important for establishing the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Yahweh. If you were to go to chapter 2, for example, you would see a great parallel with the Blessed Virgin Mary in the mother of Solomon, King, uh, Queen Bathsheba. She's the queen mother. You see this is this official position there. So we start to see how the kingdom of God is established in the old becomes a pattern for the new. But I want to focus on chapter four because in chapter four, King Solomon, the son of David, has his high officials, his royal officers. And this is what we read in verse seven of first Kings chapter four. We read that Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. And you can go down, you can read who these figures are. And among them was a royal steward, a prime minister of sorts. We'll hear about one under a, a later son of David, uh, Hezekiah, in a minute. But I want to focus on a couple of things here. One is that the royal officers of the kingdom Number one, they represented the entire kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes. And number two, they were responsible for feeding the king's household. This is, in a sense, what Jesus' apostles will be in charge of as well. But as opposed to physical food, it's going to be spiritual food. And that's important because the temporal rule is not going to be the focus of the kingdom and the political community of the New Testament. It's the spiritual that doesn't mean the temple is not important. It's very important. But I think the vision of what we're having in the New Testament is something that we're, we're not necessarily very familiar with. It's something that can flourish, in, as it does in the book of Acts, under a foreign dictatorship, under an imperial pagan rule, where they're worshiping false gods. That is the Roman Empire, where Christians are going to be persecuted. This is not an obstacle to what we might call Christian political theory. This is fertile ground, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we're going to see how this, this works out, where the temporal rule is very important, 
but where we as Christians can live under whatever government regime we find ourselves in. None of that is an obstacle to living out and furthering the kingdom of God. And that's going to be very important, all right? So I want to jump now to, let's go back to Matthew 16. And I'm sure you, many of you are very, very familiar with this, but I want to go through a couple part, point, points here, and you'll see how this relates to the kingdom of David more carefully. And you'll see what we're going to do with this in a minute. Matthew 16, verses 13 and following. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a lot we could say about this. There's, there's quite a lot we could say. Um, what I want to say at this point is Jesus has gathered around himself the 12 royal officers, the 12 apostles. He has selected one of them to be his prime minister, his royal steward. I will argue, following Dr. Barber, Michael Barber, that this is a high priestly figure. And we find a parallel for this in Isaiah 22. And you'll see the importance of this for our discussion in a minute. So turn to Isaiah 22, verses 20 and following. This is under the reign of King Hezekiah, one of the few righteous kings of David. Right? The next most righteous would be jo Josiah. But under Hezekiah, we have another royal steward figure. And as Barber shows, he's a high priestly figure. Verse 20, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who, by the way, we know about both of those figures from archaeology. We have found external attestation from their time period of these figures. And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I'm going to pause for a moment, right, but this is that, that term we, we have for the Pope, father, il papa, the father. And this is not random, right? He, this is a term in Hebrew, av, this is the term, it's a, it's a term for that royal officer who was the prime minister wielding the king's authority for him. We have a background to this in the person of Joseph in the Old Testament who functioned in this role or a similar role in the kingdom of Egypt under the Pharaoh. He was a father to Pharaoh, same sort of thing. He wielded Pharaoh's authority. That shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because when Israel asked for a king, as we saw in the last session, they modeled their kingdom on other ancient Near Eastern political kingdoms. God is stepping into that. This is the divine condescension. God is stooping down to our level into our political world to elevate us up to his. Verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, right? the key of the kingdom of David, which is the kingdom of God. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. It's not quite the binding and loosing, but it is. 
right? So this phrase of binding and loosing, which we find both in Matthew 16, given to Peter with the keys, and again in Matthew 18, when all 12 apostles are given the ability to bind and loose, that is a very common Jewish rabbinic phrase from Jesus' day. And when the rabbis spoke about this, including, in, for example, in their uh, text, Sifrei of Deuteronomy, they explicitly linked the authority to bind and loose with Eliakim's authority to open and shut from Isaiah 22. So there's a very clear parallel going on here that is, I think, quite um, uh, important. What it's doing is it's showing that Peter is wielding Jesus's authority. All right? when, when the First Vatican Council of 1870 underscored the infallibility of the Pope, the primacy of the Pope, right, the authority of the Pope in its document, Pastor Eternus, it cited three passages from sacred scripture. Matthew 16, it also cited Luke chapter 22 of the Last Supper. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, he turns to Simon Peter, and look at this on your own, in Luke chapter 22, he turns to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Satan has determined to sift you like wheat. The you is plural, all of you. Some of the English translations don't catch that, but in the Greek it's plural, all of you. Satan has determined to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, in the singular. When you return, strengthen your brothers. That shows us the role of G Peter's authority. It's for unity. It's to strengthen the brothers. The third passage Vatican I cites is from John chapter 21, when Jesus reinstates Peter in this role. Right? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. He repeats it three times. Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Well, who feeds sheep? Who tends lambs? Shepherds. In the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of Israel. In the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is entrusting his shepherding ministry to St. Peter. Right, And so what's going on here? We're finding the structure of this political kingdom of God in the Old Testament, the Davidic kingdom, fulfilled by Jesus. Right? Jesus doesn't write a book. He's not writing the New Testament. He's establishing a new community, a new people of God, starting with Israel, expanding to the Gentiles, including the Samaritans. And it has a structure that is parallel to the structure of the kingdom of the old, with a very important difference. It's not territorial. It's not temporal. It's spiritual. It's interior. And it's far more efficacious. I, I, I mentioned in the bibliography of this, this handout to look up Deus Caritas S, Pope Benedict the 16th, first papal encyclical. Because I think what he does, again, grounded in sacred scripture, is he walks through implications for political life for Catholics. And the key is formation, right? For the church's role, it's to form us. Why is that important? Right, so we have this structure in place. I'm going to move to the book of Acts. We're not going to quote from it. We don't have time. But we're going to move to the book of Acts. And what you see is Peter now and the apostles fulfill their role that Jesus entrusted them with. They live out their role as pope and first bishops, really, in the church. We start to see the kingdom of God, right, 
play out. And actually, I, I, I lied. I didn't lie. But I am going to quote from, from the book of Acts. I'm going to go to Acts chapter 1, which is not on the handout. This just came to me right now. But I think it's important, actually. I think this is often misunderstood. Acts chapter 1 begins, right? We see Jesus still there. And they ask this question, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And homily after homily, no, you know, this is not for us to know, you know. But he gives them an answer here. He says, it is not for you to know times and seasons, fine, which the Father has fixed his own authority. But, and this is a very important but, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you should be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. And in all Judea, that's the south. And Samaria, that's the north of Israel. And at the end of the earth, where the Gentiles are. Right? This, this is the kingdom. Right? Jesus is saying, you're doing it. Is the kingdom now going to be established? The answer is yes. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Right? So, so why do I say that? This is Luke's book of Acts. If you look at the gospel of Luke, this is exactly how the gospel expands. It's how it expands in the book of Acts. It starts with Jerusalem, goes to Judea in the south. They go to Samaria, Samaritans here and follow. And then what? Then to the Greeks, the Gentiles. This is also how the kingdom of David expanded, the kingdom of Israel. How? David was first accepted by his own people in Judah in the south. He takes Jerusalem. And then what? Then the north accepts him. And then he brings in the Gentiles. Think about Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. They're not Israelites. They're Hittites. So he's bringing in Gentiles into the kingdom, which expands with Solomon. So what Jesus is doing with the church in Acts is he's showing how his ministry continues through the ministry of the apostles. Why is that important for us? Because it continues to this day through the ministry of the apostles' successors, the bishops and the priests, and through all of us, through all the baptized. So if we were to walk through the book of Acts, I, I would say that we would have a very good idea of what does it mean to be Christian in the political realm. Right? On the one hand, what are the problems that they have, the Christians face? is that the Romans correctly, they correctly understand that what Christianity represents, the church represents a countercultural, radical political community that is at odds with the Roman Empire. But they misunderstand the nature of that community. They think that the church represents a threat to overturn the Roman Empire as a new temporal ruler that's going to have a big battle, it's going to fight them, um, and there's this big war. And that's not what the church is trying to do. The irony is that it does overturn the Roman Empire, even temporally. And the Roman Empire gets converted, but it gets converted from within, right? I think the sociologist Rodney Stark in his book on the rise of Christianity has shown, you know, Constantine kind of had to convert, not just convert, but he kind of had to legalize Christianity because there were so many Christians already in all walks of life at every level of society, including the emperor's mother. Right. I mean, so this is a big deal. So people are converting left, right, and center. And I talked to my students about this. You know, if you look at the figure of Abraham, think about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He intercedes on behalf of Sodom because Lot is there. His family members are there. He says, Lord, if there's 10, you know, what if there's 10 righteous? 
well, that's enough. That'll, that's enough. Why is that enough? Because the 10 will leaven the whole. They will convert Sodom. Now, there should be more than 10 because all of Lot's family is there. Maybe there's 50. We don't know, but that's the number Abraham begins with. Yet that's not enough. What's happened is all of Lot's group have become like Sodom. They've become Sodomites, pun intended. And so Lot, he gets to leave with his, his wife and the two daughters, but that's it. Israel is called to go out to the nations. If you recall that quotation from Pope Benedict, which is on the first handout from last week, you know, Pope Benedict reads this, I think, correctly, is wherever Israel goes, they're called to bring God. It doesn't work. Why? They don't have the sacramental economy. The law promises life, the life of God, eternal life, but it can't give that life. What we find in the book of Acts is that the Christians do this one-on-one, right? Think about St. Paul in his letter to Philippians or, or wherever. When he's writing from prison, the saints greet you. The saints in Rome greet you. Even those of Caesar's household. Whoa, you know, Paul is alone by himself in prison, and he's converting the Roman Empire, the guards. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. What's the difference? The sacraments. I think that's really the difference here. So I'm, I'm going to turn this to the book of Ephesians. So we can get down to the nitty-gritty, right? And and what I'm going to say is this. I think this is pretty radical in our day and age. But I think the crisis of our time really is marriage and family. And I'm not even talking, you know, we we can talk about laws and, uh, you know, crazy, all the strange things we're hearing about in the news, different forms of marriage. What is marriage? You know, I'm talking more along the lines of, I mean, that's true, but more along the lines of what St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa said, right? You want to change the world? Go home and love your family. You know, our crisis is real, but it's not simply that people don't understand marriage. We don't understand marriage and we don't want to live it. It's about dying to self and giving myself to the other, but in concrete ways, right? Yielding cheerfully in matters of, matters of personal preference for my wife, right? So, so my, I have a vocation. I have a very special vocation, and it has a very special name. Its name is Maria. It's the name of my wife, right, who is pregnant, by the way, with our seventh, due in about four weeks or five weeks. So we're, actually, we're doing March, March 12th, so seven weeks. So, so that's my vocation. It's very concrete. That means I have to put her before me. She has to put me before her. We have to raise our children. I think this is important because there are two key political realities that we don't think of as political at all in our context. And they are sacraments and they are sacraments of service, holy orders and marriage. I'm going to focus on marriage because time is short. And those who have vocations to holy orders come from marriage, marriage and family life. And some like father Hezekiah has both. Right. So we have to think about that. Right. So, so Ephesians, Chapter one, I'm not going to quote a lot of this. I just want us to understand Ephesians. I think what he's doing, St. Paul is grounding everything on this universal call to holiness. It has radical political implications, right? Chapter one, verse four, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. Right, we're called to be holy I mean, before the foundation of the world. 
Pope St. John Paul II, I think, gets this exactly right in his Theology of the Body and Elsewhere, where he says that, you know, this means that before God began to create, he said, I want Jeff, Morrow, to live, to exist, and Maria, and them to be together. And I want Andy Hickman to exist, and all of you watching to exist. He loved us into creation. And then they began to create. And he gave us concrete vocations. So we're in the new year, right? We get New Year's to be holy. I want to be resolution to be holy. What does that mean? That's like saying I want to be healthy. I want to be healthy this year. That's not a very good resolution. Better resolution for health. I'm going to walk five times a week. I want to be holy, right? I'm going to love my wife. What does that mean? Maybe it means I'm going to praise her before I correct her, etc. Whatever. Maybe it means that I'm going to do a better job you know, seeing messes on the floor and picking up after the kids or myself or helping the kids pick up or whatever, but it's concrete, all right? That's very important. That's what St. Paul is doing here. We're called to be holy. You walk through chapters two, chapters three, baptism becomes the focus, right? We become children of God. This is the whole, you know, radical political message of Christianity. It's that what Jesus is by his very nature, Son of God, we become by grace through baptism. We become sons and daughters of God, really and truly. If I adopt a child, they're really my child. But I can't give them my blood. God truly gives us his nature, his life, which is his love, when he adopts us through the sacraments of baptism. All right, so this is very important. So you walk through the mystery of Christ, hidden through the ages. Jews and Gentiles become fellow heirs with God through baptism. All right? This is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. Then you walk through chapters 4 and 5, and what do we find? We find instructions on how to live a Christian life. Right? In a sense, this is the political program. Right? Therefore, verse 25 of chapter 4, put away falsehood. Speak the truth, right? So don't lie. Instead, what? Speak the truth. Verse 28, let the thief, no, 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 it doesn't say the thief goes to hell. No, the thief's converted. So let the thief no longer steal, but rather work with your hands so that you may be able to give to those in need. Right? This is really very important, I think. So before you stole why for yourself, now what do you do? Now you work. You don't steal, you work to get money, food, to give to those in need, right? This is very important stuff. So you just walk through all of this. He goes through this entire section here of how to live as a Christian. Well, where do we do that? Where do we do that? Most important for those of us in family life is in the family. So it should not shock us that he turns from living as a Christian to what? Husbands, love your wives, right? Chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, go down to verse 21. Husbands and wives, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, subject to your husbands. Verse 23, husband. Oh, sorry, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 
Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. Verse 5, slaves, probably house servants, be obedient. This is family life. He's talking about husbands, wives, children, home servants. Why? Because this is what matters. This is where really the rubber hits the road. This is where Christian, Christian life is lived. This is where children are formed to become saints, participants in the broader community of the church and of whatever temporal society they find themselves in. Roman Empire, United States of America, China, Sudan, wherever. This is important because marriage here is called a great mystery. In Latin, a great sacrament, a manium sacramentum. Okay? So this is the sacrament of marriage. And what does he do after this? Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is political. It is a battle. But listen to this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the emperor. No. Against the wiles of the devil, the spiritual being. As Pope Francis has tirelessly reminded us. For we are not contending against flesh and blood. Temporal and the flesh and blood, that's important. But it's not the most important. But against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is about spiritual warfare. And it's not limited to, it's not limited to exorcists and exorcisms. That's included. The family life. Right? It's not random that St. Paul begins with marriage and family life and turns immediately to battling the devil. That's how the Bible began, right? With creation, Genesis 2, husband and wife, the man and the woman. Why? For this reason, a man shall leave his family, the two shall cleave and become one flesh. And then what happens in chapter 3? Enter the serpent, spiritual warfare. So the very beginning of creation of humanity in Genesis 2 and 3 we find family life, and we find family life attacked by the devil. We find the same imagery going on in Ephesians. I think this is instructive for us. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to your handout for those of you who have it. Skip all the way down to the fourth page. I'm pulling a lot here from Scott Hahn's book, The First Society. If there's any book that I think is relevant now personally, for our role in the United States as Catholics and political life, I think it's this book, The First Society. And it's focusing on marriage, the sacrament of matrimony, the restoration of the social order. And I think this gets at kind of the base level of what we as individual Catholics are called to do, right? So we think about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus has a priesthood, a kingship, a prophetic ministry. We participate in that. Right now, there are we participate in that through our baptism. Now, there are two different means of participating in Christ's priesthood, and this is important. And they are essentially different; they're not different in degree. Right there is the hierarchical priesthood, which is very important, and there is the uh, way that we participate through our baptism in Jesus's priesthood. The priesthood like Father Hezekiah's priesthood, the, the hierarchical ministerial priesthood, is at the service of the lay faithful. It is ordered, right, to us, 
and, and, the, and the symbolism here is very beautiful, I think, right? Like, for example, this morning when I went to Mass, my pastor, Father Jim, who also can uh, participate in the Byzantine Rite, he inserted the Blessed Sacrament into my mouth. I didn't insert it into his, right? There's beautiful imagery here, right, of service, the one who, who feeds. Why? Because the priests are ordained to shepherd the faithful, to nourish through the sacraments, and to teach that threefold ministry is very important. Why? Because of Gaudium et Spes 22. I should have put this in the handout, but I didn't. Gaudium et Spes 22 and Gaudium et Spes 24. If you had to read two paragraphs of the Second Vatican Council, I would recommend those two. Right? This is the document of the church in the modern world. Paragraph 22, paragraph 24. Why? They are the two most quoted by Pope St. John Paul II, who was there, and a very important reader of the council. Paragraph 22 can be summed up in that if you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. God made man shows us what it means to be human. That's paragraph 22. And if you want to understand paragraph 24, it's that if you want to find yourself and become yourself, you have to make a sincere gift of yourself. Right? That we are, are, we are created to become a gift for the others. And that plays out in priesthood, and it plays out quite clearly in married life. It's very important. Pope St. John Paul II spoke about this a lot. So I'm going to quote now on page four of the handout from Scott Hahn's First Society. This is page Roman numeral 17 on page four. It's the first quotation there. And this is what he says, and it's so true. We are transmitting children to our society much more directly than we are transmitting a society to our children. Let me read that again. We are transmitting children to our society much more directly than we are transmitting a society to our children. I don't know about you, but I get worried about the society in which we live. I get worried about my children. But the reality is we are forming not children, but adults. We're forming future saints, hopefully. Right? That's the point. Okay, I'm going to go down further. A quote again. This is Roman numeral 20. And this is the challenge of his book, but it's the challenge we have today. And that is to bring the superabundance of grace that bubbles forth from the sacramental life of the church into our families, our communities, our society, and our civilization. The same power that can transform souls can transform the world. It's up to us to bring it to fruition. Okay? How do we do this? Well, first of all, we ourselves have to frequent the sacraments. We have to do it. Right? This, is, this is a tall order, but it is essential. Right? It's not enough to be baptized. We, it's not enough to have received our first Holy Communion. It's not enough to make our first penance, our first confession. We have to go again and again and again and again to worthily receive the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, and then to say, sorry, Lord, in the confessional. We have to do that as very frequently. All right? Um, once a year is not enough. It's a bare minimum. <laughs> People who do the bare minimum in my class, they get a C. 
right? We want excellent. Why? Not to be perfectionists, but to be lovers the way God loves us. So how do we do that? We have to make the gift of ourselves. It's impossible. At least it is for me, right? It's impossible. If you think you do a great job, ask your spouse, right? Ask those who know you well, okay? So we have to do better. We can't, we can't, we can't give up and we can't be happy with being mediocre. God didn't call anybody into creation to be mediocre. He called everyone to be a saint. That's one of the most radical teachings of the Second Vatican Council in its dogmatic constitution of the church, that all are called to the fullness of charity, of love, to love like God loves, to be saints. You can't say, well, that's for Mother Teresa. Or that's for Pope St. John Paul II. No, that's for everybody, right? From a gang member to you know, a drug dealer, a thief, whomever. It's for everybody. Pimps, you pick it. They are all in need of Jesus, as I am still in need of Jesus, as you are still in need of Jesus, as Pope Francis is still in need of Jesus, as our bishops are still in need of Jesus, as the holiest people we know are still in need of Jesus in this life. And so what we have to do is we have to go and, and find Jesus and seek him again and again in our work, in our family life, at church, in our neighbors, everywhere we go. We have to find Christ and we have to place him there. And how do we do that? Well, we need to seek him in the Eucharist. We need to go to confession. We need time of prayer. And we need to take it very seriously because everything is a wreck. But God is in control. And he wants you and he wants me and he wants our children to bring him and place him at the summit of all temporal realities. That's the political message of Christianity, of the book of Acts, of the letter to the Ephesians, of the New Testament. And, and what we do then is when we find Christ in the sacraments, we bring him to our families, right? We bring him to our spouses. How? Well, one way is yielding cheerfully in matters of personal preference. Cheerfully, right? Another way is, is, is leading them to Christ, helping to encourage one another. Not just to go to the sacraments more regularly, I mean, if you're already going every day to Mass, you don't need to go more than once a day, right? So, so maybe more regularly, if maybe not more regularly, but all of us can get more out of the sacraments. We can all be better disposed. We all receive the same Jesus. But as the church teaches us in the catechism and elsewhere, we benefit differently from our reception of Jesus, in part based on our dispositions, okay? Now, I know of no better way of preparing for receiving our Lord well and by making a good confession. And you can do it every week or whenever you need. You don't have to wait to have a big sin, right? There's no better way of preventing big sins than going to confession and bringing little sins, important sins. They don't have to be big. If you don't have any big ones, that's great. They can be little. They should be important ones, which might not be, there might be ones that you fall into regularly, small as they be. Or they may not be very regular, but they may be important. They may be impeding your relationship with God. And with those who are important in your life, like spouse, children, neighbor, family member, coworker, whoever you have that's important in your life. And I think that's important. And then well, what do we do? And we teach our children how to live out their faith in a way that's attractive to others, in a way that leads by service. So all the virtues we want to see in society we have to teach our children to have. 
And unfortunately, unfortunately, or maybe it's fortunate for some of you, the best way to teach, the most effective way we teach, it's by our example. Right? So when we lose our temper, we teach them how to lose their temper. When we say sorry, we teach them how to ask forgiveness. When we try to get better at something, we teach them how to do that. I mean, the reality is how I treat, how I treat my wife teaches my two daughters how they should expect to be treated by men. How I treat my wife teaches my sons how they should expect to treat women, right, for better and worse. So those relationships are really important. We can't do it without God. This is, again, why we need the priesthood, so that they can shepherd us, teach us, and give us God's divine life through the grace of the sacraments. And I know we're short on time. Let me just end with one more quotation. Page five of the handout. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is what the church has to offer our society. And in the sacraments, his life breaks into our world in a way that is perfectly suited to our embodied nature. The sacraments, therefore, are the central feature of Christian life, as long as our bodies occupy space and time. And so it is through the sacraments that the church constitutes political society. And that is why the church is the perfect society, even though it's populated by imperfect members like you and me. Okay, so we'll end there. So there's some time for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. Pursuing this theme of family, uh, Bishop Morlino recently passed away, I believe that was last year, uh, gave a wonderful talk on St. John Paul II's letter on the family. Uh, and there was a whole talk on that. And we'll include the links to this. Um, they'll be posted as resources under the event page. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell gave a talk on the importance of the family, which you might be interested in. If you're wanting to sort of zoom in particular on marriage as a sacrament, I would recommend Father Hezekiah's talk, Flesh of My Flesh and Marriage Covenant in Sacred Scripture. But then also on the theme of frequent uh, confession or the importance of confession, um, uh, I have found it very helpful uh, by Benedict Bauer, Frequent Confession, Its Place in the Spiritual Life. Uh, just uh, personally, it, it kind of, you kind of like think you got the general understanding of confession down. And uh, this book makes you realize, at least for me, like, oh, whoa, it's like, in one sense, not different, but in another sense, very different than what I thought and uh, gives very practical advice. So it's a great book to recommend. And then also pursuing this, uh, um, our call to holiness in marriage. So a good book on marriage itself, I would recommend this, Marriage, A Path to Sanctity. Uh, this is a great book. Uh, my wife and I read this as we were um, preparing uh, uh, during our engagement, and it was very helpful. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and do Q&A. Okay. Sister Mary Mullen asks, what does it mean uh, to you to have the kingdom of God, uh, or, or sorry, what does this mean to you, Dr. Morrow, that the kingdom of God is within you? That's from uh, our Lord, uh, for example, the Gospel of Luke. And what he's emphasizing, right, is, is that he it is, he's in us. Right? I think the way we understand it is with grace, right? So with grace, we carry about the kingdom within us. Why? Because the kingdom is where Jesus is. He is the kingdom, mm -hmm. in sense, the fulfilled Israel. And so he dwells in our soul in grace as he is in heaven. 
So wherever we go in grace, we're bringing the kingdom with us. That's what I would say. I really like this question coming in from Paul. Uh, Paul's writing in and saying, are there environments that are um, too Catholic or sorry, too toxic to be Catholic in? Uh, So this idea of like, okay, we're supposed to be going in there and being the leaven are there places that we shouldn't be entering in. Uh, Paul says he's um, a public school teacher and sometimes he wonders about this. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, no, at one level, no. On the other hand, yes. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to be going to uh, um, places that would, you know, dangers that would cause, you know, where it would cause you to sin, right. You don't want to be going to, uh, you know, um, you know, houses of ill repute, mm-hmm. um, you know, any you know, salacious places, strip clubs, et cetera. Um, I know people have done that as missionaries or whatever. Don't do that, right? So there's certain places you don't want to go, you know, to dens of sin, of iniquity or whatever. Rather, what we want to do is wherever we find ourselves, we need to bring Christ. If you're a garbage man, be a garbage man. You know, bring Christ there. If you're a cab driver, if your job is not sanctifiable, you're a hitman, you're a prostitute, whatever, we have to try to find a way of uncomplicating that to get you out of that. Does that make sense? So obviously you can't, you can't be a Catholic very well when you're committing sin. So we want to have a job in a sense or a normal kind of ordinary life that's out of that kind of a context. So I wouldn't go to those kind of contexts. That's what you mean. I'm assuming that's what, that's what he means. Yeah. Uh, well, I also know this, this touches on something that kind of like uh, pops up every once in a while in conversation. How does this relate to this, uh, you know, this notion of the Benedict option, right? That we're supposed to, um, someone argue the, the world has gotten to a point where it's just so toxic that in order to make progress, we almost need to like do a strategic retreat. Uh, yeah, that's definitely not my opinion. However, I, I'm of the opinion that that is a legitimate opinion for some. I think, I think as Catholics, to be quite honest, I think we need a Catholic option, which is universal, which says those who really feel called to do a Benedict option, go for it. More power to you. Live like a lay monastic thing. Go for it. Praise God. And then others of us, I, I, I feel, yeah, I get really excited about being at the heart of society. You know, I'm a theology professor, so I'm not. But that's what gets me excited. I, I can't tell you how many ordinary Catholics, lukewarm, whomever, they get really excited of this idea of being a lawyer or whatever and, and being on fire for God. I mean, I know guys on Wall Street that go to Mass every day, confession every week. On Wall Street, right? I know lawyer, I know a judge, same thing. I mean, there's some serious Catholics in all these places. And if you think it's going to hell in the handbasket now, wait to see what happens if all the serious Catholics get out of normal occupations, then, then, then we really are lost. So I, I personally think we need to be everywhere. We need religious life to boom. We need more, you know, more vocations to the priesthood. We need Benedict options, go for it. We need the rest of us at the heart of society. I think the, I think the main call for Catholics is going to be exactly where we are and to seek God there radically, seriously, with as much passion as a Carthusian should have. A vowed Carthusian. That has to be my idea of marriage and family life and my job and bringing Christ there and forming our kids to be able to deal with this toxic environment. And they're not going to be able to do it without the sacraments. So they need the sacraments. And they're not going to go if we don't go. I, mean, I get this all the time. How do my, my kids don't go to confession? Well, do you go to confession? Or do they think that's a children's thing to do? And when, I can, when I'm an adult, I'll be like, Daddy, I don't, I don't go anymore. I think that's really the key. Oh, let's conclude with this question from uh, Maria Ter- Teresa. And actually, Dr. Mara, you'll be able to speak 
on this kind of a unique perspective, given your, your background uh, converting from Judaism. But she's wondering what, what's like, you know, what's happening to Jews right now? And I think the presumption here is Orthodox Jews. Uh, do they still follow that structure of the kingdom? Well, like, they can't. No, they can't anymore. But there is the hope that, you know, you, you got to remember that the kingdom of David was ruled basically by the king, but also by the high priest. Mm-hmm. And so there is an expectation among some Orthodox Jews of a return to the priesthood, a new temple being built and that sort of thing. But I'll share with you one very interesting thing, and I'm not going to name names because it's pretty sensitive, but I know quite a few Hasidic Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, mm-hmm. that are being convinced of Catholicism, specifically Catholic Christianity. I meet with a guy regularly. He's a Hasidic Jew, the whole thing, the dress, everything. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced of the Catholic Church. He just can't quite convert yet for a lot of reasons with family and friends. So there's a lot of really interesting things happening as they're coming to conclusions about the Catholic Church and Jesus from reading the Talmud and the Old Testament in light of what they're learning about with Catholicism. Mm, that's really cool uh, as that approaches. Dr. Morrow, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.